The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Amen. Praise the Lord. It is great to be with you this evening. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Joshua as we continue our studies through that wonderful Old Testament book. So with that, we can jump into our study. And I'm excited about this one. It was a, it was a study where the, the further I got into it, the deeper I went, the more the Lord just continued to reveal to me and things he opened up to me um, that were just really thrilling for me. And I, I hope to be able to convey that to you this evening. And the title of my sermon is Put It to Work. Put It to work. So just help me preach a little bit by turning to your neighbor and tell him, sometimes you got to put it to work. Put it to work. Put it to work. All right, so I'm going to set things up like this. There's this little booklet. It's called The Art of War. And it's this small little booklet that deals with the topic of military strategies and tactics. It was written by a Chinese military strategist named Sun Tzu way back in the 5th century BC, so a long time ago. Yet it is still considered to this day to be one of the seminal works on the, uh, on the topic of warfare. And in one of the memorable chapters from that little book, the author, Sun Tzu, he talks about the importance of knowing thy enemy. Have you ever heard that phrase? You need to know your enemy? Well, now you know where it comes from. Actually, I want to read the full quote to you, and here's what it says. If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself but not the enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. If you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. So a little cryptic there, but what he's basically saying is, before we can defeat our enemy, we need to first know who he is and what he does and how he works. Because if we know the enemy's playbook, then that gives us a huge tactical advantage over them. It's a little bit like this. Remember a couple of years ago when the New England Patriots football team got in big trouble from the NFL because they were videotaping uh, the other team's practices. And they got in big trouble, and they lost draft picks and all the rest. Why? Because it gave them an unfair advantage over the teams they were playing. It was like every time the other team lined up, they already knew what to expect. Well, guess what? As Christians, the Bible tells us that we face a very real enemy. Now, he goes by a lot of different names. He was referred to in various parts of the Bible as Satan or the devil. He's also known as the accuser of the brethren. Peter calls him our adversary. And he tells us furthermore that our adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, there are some who don't believe in a literal devil. They say he's just a figurehead. He's a representative meant to, in a symbolic form, represent or typify evil in all of its forms. Now, of course, the real devil is just fine with people not believing in him, right? just makes his job that much easier. Those people are that much easier to pick off, and they don't even know it's him doing it. But you know as well as I do that there is a devil. He's real. 
and he has a plan for your life. The Bible says that God has a plan for your life to bless you, to give you a future and a hope. Well, guess what? The devil has a plan for your life too. And John 10, 10 tells us what it is. He wants to rob you, kill you, and destroy you. So how's that for a plan? But we know that as Christians, we don't need to be afraid of the devil. Why? Because we have his playbook. We know what he's going to do. And by studying scripture, we can get ahead of him and we can know what to expect. You see, in 2 Corinthians, Paul talked about the devil's desire to outwit us. But he went on to add this, but we're not unaware of his schemes or his tricks. So do you see what Paul's saying there? We know the devil's schemes. And that gives us a huge tactical advantage in our fight against him. So what are the devil's strategies? How does he come against us? This is the thing that I want to talk with you about this evening. And to do that, we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 9. So with that, let's go ahead and begin reading our text there in verse 1. It says, Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country, the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him, the Israelites, we've come from a distant country. Please make a treaty with us. And the Israelites said to the Hivites, but perhaps you live near us. So how can we make a treaty with you? We are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, what are you and where do you come from? And they answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we've heard reports of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said to us, take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at home on the day we left to come to you. But now see how dry and moldy it is. And these wineskins that we filled were new. But see how cracked they are. And our clothes and sandals are worn out by the very long journey. All right, so what's going on here? Well, as we catch up with the Israelites, we find them fresh on the heels of a couple of impressive victories. At this point in their journey into the promised land, remember, they're beginning to take possession of that land that God had promised to give to Abraham and to his descendants. And at this point, the Israelites have really hit their stride. They'd seen the great walled city of Jericho come down and then after that brief hiccup with Achan and the town of Ai, where they lost one battle, then they came back and they took out the smaller town of Ai as well. And so as word of their impressive victories began to spread, the remaining kings of that region decided to form an alliance and come against Israel to attack them. However, in verse 3, we learn that the Gibeonites took a decidedly different approach. 
They recognized that they didn't stand a chance against Israel in any kind of military conflict. So instead of fighting them, they instead decided to trick them into forming an alliance with them. And by the way, this is one of our enemies, the devil's favorite plays in his playbook. He'll attack you from without, but when his attacks from without don't work, he'll often resort to trying to infiltrate your ranks from within. You could say that the devil lives by that old adage, if you can't beat him, you might as well join him, right? Incidentally, this is when he often ends up doing his most destructive work. And I think there's an obvious reason for that, right? We're expecting the attacks from without, and so we've got our dukes up and we're ready to go to battle against him. But what we're not always expecting is for him to slip up from behind or beside us. And that's what happened here. When the Gibeonites heard about the, the Lord and all that he had done and giving victories to Israel over Jericho and Ai, they, they resorted to a ruse, the Bible said. This is a form of trickery, and their ruse, as we see, involved a couple of different things, and I want to point those out to you. The first thing that it involved was subterfuge. The Gibeonites disguised themselves as something they were not. The text goes to great lengths to outline for us how they packed moldy bread, and they put on worn-out sandals, and they wore tattered clothing, and they went to elaborate measures, and really it was a, an Oscar-worthy performance that they put together, this elaborate ruse to try to convey, convey to the Israelites that they'd come from far away. And this, again, is, is something that the enemy often does with us. He disguises himself and his intentions. You need to know this. The devil is a master of deception. In fact, if you go all the way back to the beginning, there in the Garden of Eden, the first time that Satan appears, he comes in disguise. When he appeared to Eve in the garden, he didn't walk up to her with a red jumpsuit and a tail and two horns and a pitchfork and a maniacal grin plastered on his face and tell her about his plan to destroy her life, right? I mean, if he had done that, she would have immediately just run as fast as she could in the opposite direction. He knew that, which is why instead of doing that, he disguised his true intentions. He always does. You see, in the very first description that we get of the devil in Genesis 3.1, we're told that he is crafty and subtle. When it suits him, he'll prowl about like that roaring lion that we read about earlier in 1 Peter. But he doesn't always come in that form. At other times, he slithers up like a snake. And then there are times when he disguises himself as an angel of light. And then when it suits him, sometimes he'll come masquerading as a sheep, but he's really a wolf in sheep's clothing. And that's what we really need to watch out for, you right? Because looks, they can be so deceiving. Remember, um, was it Grimm's fairy tale, Little Red Riding Hood, that famous story and, and how the wolf dresses up in the granny's clothing and, and tricks the little girl into thinking that he's actually her granny. And, and she's pretty, pretty slow, wouldn't you say? I mean, like the signs were pretty obvious. What big eyes you have, what big ears you have. Wow, what big teeth you have. Better to eat you if. And he eats her and gobbles her up. And it's a, a, a fairy tale that's meant to warn us for seeing things as they really are. 
And similarly, I've seen a lot of Christians over the years get taken out by wolves in sheep's clothing because they either failed to see or perhaps chose to ignore the obvious signs. Listen to me. Just because someone tells you that they're a Christian or just because you meet someone at church for that matter doesn't automatically mean that that person is a born-again believer or that they're godly. In some cases, they might just be a wolf masquerading as a sheep. Oh, but they're so sweet, or he's so dreamy, or she's so hot, hot like hell. You need to run the other way unless, unless that person is following the Lord. You know what I'm saying? The Apostle Paul, he, he warned the Ephesian elders before he left that church. He goes, I know what's going to happen as soon as I leave. There's going to be wolves that are going to try to come in and take out the flock. So be on your guard. Watch out. Why? Because our enemy loves to disguise himself. Moving on, we see secondly that the Gimeonites' ruse involved a second thing. They lied, which really shouldn't come as a big surprise to, to us to learn that our enemy will lie in order to achieve his objectives. But that's what the Gibeonites did. They lied. They told the Israelites they'd come from a faraway country when, in fact, their nation, Gibeon, it was only 25 miles away, about a three-day journey from where Israel was camped at that moment. And again, this is straight out of the devil's playbook. Listen, he doesn't fight fair. He doesn't play by the rules. He not only deceives and manipulates, he'll lie if that's what it takes. The Bible tells us, that when the devil lies, he's speaking his native tongue. This is his lingua franca. Why? Because the devil is a liar from birth. He is the father of lies. And the main thing that he lies about with us is sin and its devastating effects. It's interesting when you look at Hebrews, it talks about the deceitfulness of sin. And I think that's a fitting description of sin. It's deceitful. And so is the devil. He always presents the bait, but hides the hook. He doesn't walk up to us and say, hey, how would you like to try some heroin today? How does that sound? How would you like to become a drug addict? You'll probably uh, resort to thievery. You'll lose your family, your job, and everyone you love. You'll become homeless. You'll live on the streets. It's going to be great. You wanna do you know, he knows that we're ready for that. So what does he do? He comes up to us, and instead he says, hey, you need to relax. Take the edge off, have a drink, pop a pill, just one toke, it's not going to make a big difference. He doesn't come up and say, hey, how would you like to destroy two families by committing adultery? It'll be horrible. There'll be all kinds of collateral damage. No, he says, sex is fun. And if it feels good, how can it be wrong? God wants you to be happy. Who cares that they aren't a believer? You have so much in common. They're a great person. God wants you to be happy. And that's how he gets us through deception, trickery, and lies. Now, of course, the Gibeonites, they had a ultimate goal in all of this, and so does the, the devil. In verse 6, we see the Gibeonites' end game. They said to the Israelites, come, make a treaty with us. Enter into a binding covenant with us, in other words. And again, you need to know that God had already forbidden the Israelites from entering into any peace treaties with the people from these, these, these lands and regions. In Exodus 23, the Lord clearly said, do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. That's Deuteronomy 23, 32. So they had the heart of the Lord. 
And by the way, so do we. There are a number of places in the New Testament that warn us about the dangers of entering into binding covenants with unbelievers. In one place, the Apostle Paul asks this question, what fellowship does light have with darkness? What communion does righteousness have with unrighteousness? And what part does Christ have with Satan? In another place, he talks about the dangers of being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Have you heard that phrase before? And this is from the Bible. And essentially, it's a phrase that harkens back to an ancient practice wherein they would take a yoke, which was a, a piece of wood that would bond two oxen together as they plowed a field. And what they would do is they would take two oxen that were about the same size and about the same strength to work a field together. And in doing that, they could really get a lot accomplished. They could pull huge loads, obviously. But when you had two oxen who were unequally yoked, meaning you had one strong one and one weak one or one big one and one small one, what would end up happening is the, the smaller, weaker one would end up dragging the bigger one down. Or in some cases, they would just walk in circles because the big one's just pulling the cart this way and that. And that's what it means to be unequally yoked. And when Paul talks about that with regards to us, he's, he's warning us about the dangers of entangling ourselves with someone who doesn't have the same vision, purpose, belief systems, worldview, values, and convictions. When you're not aligned on those important issues, what it can do is it can cause friction, and you end up moving and fighting against one another, and you can't make any progress. And so this, these are reasons why the Lord warns Israel and us by extension, don't get into these binding contracts, these covenants. But what did the Israelites do? Same thing we often do. It says in verse 7 that the Israelites said to the Hivites, how can we really make a treaty with you? And they said, but we're your servants. And so in verse 14, the Israelites sampled their provisions, but they did not inquire of the Lord. Now, this is a little strange to me because we already read that the, the wine they had was old and the bread was moldy. Like, they're like, ah, that looks like moldy bread, but let me just try it to make sure. Try it by, oh yeah, tasted like our communion crackers or something, I don't know. I mean, really, come on, those things. But God is, God is good. So they try the moldy bread and they try the gross wine, but far worse than that was their failure to inquire of the Lord. What a gift we have. What an opportunity to be able to come before the Lord and to gain his wisdom and his insight into our situations. One of the first verses I ever learned, you ought to memorize this verse. Teach it to your kids. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on what? Your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. And then what? He'll direct your paths. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And so the Lord begs us to come to him. He has vast troves of divine knowledge. We, when we come to him, we gain access to inside counsel. He knows everything that there is to know about everything, and he begs us to come to him. Yet how often are we guilty of just doing what seems right to us? We look at the evidence, we make a judgment, and every time we do, we get ourselves in trouble. And that's what happened to the Israelites in verse 14 and 15, it says Joshua made a treaty of peace with them, 
to let them live. And the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. By the way, this is Satan's end game. He knows that he can't beat you. You have the mark of God. You are saved by grace, and he's lost the battle for your soul. And so what he's going to try to do in your life as well as mine is he's going to try to get us to defeat ourselves by getting us to make deals or covenants with him. There's like this old game show. Maybe some of you were around when it was popular. Let's make a deal. It actually came back just a couple of years ago. They brought it back. And it's this one of those game shows where they, you dress up real crazy, and they bring you down, and then you, you win a prize. But after you've won the prize, you have an opportunity. You can keep what you won, or you can exchange it for what's behind door number one, or door number two, or door number three. And in the event where you choose to trade it for what's behind the door, you might get an upgrade and get a car or something cool like that. But other times, you end up getting nothing. And they, they say that's when you get zonked in the game. Well, listen, every time you make a deal with the devil, you're going to get zonked. Tell your neighbor, don't get zonked. Deals with the devil never result in upgrades. The only things they ever result in are pain, misery, and heartache. Well, let's wrap things up. Getting back to our story, we find that it didn't take too long for the Israelites and Joshua to realize their mistake. Verse 16 says, three days after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, the Israelites heard that they were neighbors living near them. So the Israelites set out, and on the third day, they came to their cities, Gibeon, Kepherah, Beeroth, Kiriath, Jiriam. But the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the assembly had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And the whole assembly grumbled against the leaders. But all the leaders answered, we've given them our oath by the Lord, the God of Israel, and we can't touch them now. All right. So they marched for a few more days, and they uncover the ruse. They figure out what the Gibeonites had done. But at this point, it's too late. They had already entered into an agreement with them. It was binding, and they had to honor it. You could say that they had made their bed, and now they were forced to lie in it. And I, I wonder if there's anybody here tonight who finds themselves in a similar position. You bought into the enemy's lies. You made a deal with the devil, so to speak. You've entered into binding covenants and contracts with him. You fell for all of his ruses and his tricks and his deceptions. And you wish you could go back and undo those things, but you can't, right? What's been done is done, and you can't change the past. And you're wondering, what do I do now? I guess I've made my bet. I've got to lie in it. Well, all of that might be good and true. But I believe God sent me here to tell somebody something, and it's this. Don't let your history derail your destiny. Listen, listen, this is so cool. God can redeem any situation. He can reverse any curse, and he can turn any mistake into a miracle. This is where our story gets good. Look with me at verse 20. In verse 20, we read, this is what we will do to them. This is Joshua. We'll let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us for breaking the oath we swore to them. They continue, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to them was kept. 
Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, why did you deceive us by saying we live a long way from you while actually you live near us? You're now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Jump down to verse 26. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. And that day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. All right, check this out. This is so cool. If the first part of this story gives us a sneak peek into the enemy's playbook, then the back half highlights the grace of God and shows us how God can redeem even our biggest mistakes. Let me explain. Joshua and the Israelites, they blew it big time, right? There's, there's no getting around that. There's no denying that. They fell for the enemy's lies, and they ended up entangling themselves in covenants that they couldn't break. But it's what they did after they messed up, after they made their mistake, that really impresses me. You see, we're all, all of us, every single one of us, we're all going to make mistakes, a lot of mistakes. One of the truest verses in the Bible, they're all true, but this one's really true. I think it's James 4 too. It says, we all stumble in many ways. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. We make lots of mistakes. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, a righteous man or woman falls seven times in a day. Some of us, we've already hit that number by the time we've hit the snooze button, right? <laughs> For the third time. So the question isn't whether or not we're going to fall. The question is, how will you respond when you do? And here's what we learn from the Bible. At the end of the day, it's not going to be your failures that will define you. Ultimately, it will be your responses to those failures that define you. And this is where our story here becomes particularly helpful, because after Joshua blew it, and I'm sure he was embarrassed, look what he did. He didn't wallow in self-pity. He didn't run and hide. He didn't try to pin the blame on everybody else. Well, it was the leader's fault. No, no, no. He went up and he confronted him as his mistake. We see this in verse 22 where it says that Joshua summoned the Gibeonites. I love that. He marched right up to the Gibeonites and he called them out on their deception. Again, this is super instructive because it tells us that when we blow it, the healthiest thing that we can do is own it. Admit your mistake. Confront your mistake, your sin. And it's critical and crucial that we do this because you'll never be able to move past what you failed to address. We see an example of this with King David. Remember, he tried for a while to hide his sin and what he had done with Bathsheba. And the whole time he did that, he was in utter torment of soul. But eventually, he confessed his sin as Nathan and his friend called him out on the carpet. And it was in doing so that he found healing. And here's what he wrote about that experience in Psalm 32. He said, when I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, when I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, you forgave my guilt. So that's the first thing we learned. Don't try to hide your mistakes. Some of you, you've blown it and you've been hiding your sin, and it's time to bring it out into the light. Confront it, acknowledge it, own it. And then once you've done that, the second thing that we learn from Joshua, and this is really where I want to land this thing tonight. This is what I want you to walk away with. The second thing that Joshua did is he put his mistake to work. Now, it took me a long time to get from the title of my sermon to the point of my sermon, but here we are. You got to 
put your mistake to work. And we see this in verse 23. And there Joshua tells the Gibeonites that he was going to let them live because he had to honor the covenant that he had made. But he says, I'm going to force you into becoming woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. He put his mistake to work. Now listen, here's how this plays out in our lives. Confronting your mistakes, it's crucial, it's critical, but don't stop there. After you've confronted your mistake, you gotta put it to work. In other words, don't let your mistakes go to waste. There are valuable lessons to be learned within every mistake that we make. But there is also leverage. You can leverage your mistakes for the kingdom of God. You see, God will, he can, and he will redeem whatever you bring to him. But before you can do that, you got to commit to putting it to work. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. I met this guy not too long ago. He's, he's a newer friend of mine. And he was telling me his, his story. And for a long time, he, um, he was a drug trafficker, like pretty high up. And um, he, was, he was selling drugs all over Southern California, up and down the coast. And he would throw these huge rave parties. And he had channels of distribution. And of course, he was constantly trying to evade the cops and the law. And so a big part of his, his job was you know, working things in such a way where nobody would get caught, mainly himself. Then one day, he gets saved. Now he's got this whole skill set. How is he going to put it to work? Well, this is so cool. He ends up working for the underground church. And now what he does is he takes all those skills that he learned in the world of evading cops, of evading capture, disseminating and distributing um, discipleship materials now. And that's what he's doing. He's working in the underground church and he's super successful. He took what the enemy intended for evil and he used it for good. That's what you call putting your mistake to work for the kingdom. Leverage it. Use what God has done in your life. God's, Satan says, I want to use this to bury you. And God says, I'm going to turn that thing that was a curse into a blessing to propel you as a springboard into your future that I have for you. God will use anything, even mistakes. Did you know? I read this, this today. Did you know that chocolate chip cookies were the, ac the result of an accident? Like, talk about a glorious mistake that turned into culinary confectionery cuisine of glory to God. It was a mistake. The, the, the baker could have just taken that dough and thrown it out. Oh, this didn't work out. It didn't go according to plan. But instead, they, they didn't, and, and we have them to thank for it. Amen. Amen. I just thought I'd throw that in there. I won't even charge you for that one. The point is, we need to learn how to take our mistakes and, and, and put them to work for us. God will use everything. In fact, I love the verse in Romans 8.28 that says, he works all things together for good. God will work with everything and anything that you give to him. And that includes your mistakes, I believe. But it's not just Joshua's story that gets turned around here. The thing I love about Joshua chapter 9 is that God turned around the story for the Gibeonites too. And I'll show you how. In verse 23, Joshua pronounces this curse on them. Cursed are you for what you've done to us. And by all accounts and measures, that should have been the end of their story. That should be where their story ends. Only it's not. 
Why? Again, because God can reverse any curse. He did it for Joshua, and he did it for the Gibeonites too. You see, if you follow their story, here's what you'll find. That they began to be the woodcutters. Now, the wood that they cut was used in the burning of all of these offerings on the altar there, ultimately at the temple. And the place where Gibeon was forced to serve was a part of Israel that was controlled by the Levites. And so what that meant is the Gibeonites were surrounded by the things of the Lord and surrounded by the people of the Lord. And as they sat in in the ambiance and the presence and the power of God and they saw it on display and the goodness of God and the glory of God and the grace of God, their hearts were melted and the Gibeonites became believers in Yahweh. They eventually became a part of Israel. They were were absorbed into the people of God, and they actually became major players later on in the history of the Jews. Not only did they serve in the tabernacle, they lived in the priestly city. They became home to the Ark of the Covenant for a time. And after that, they teamed up with none other than Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And I love that. God took what was meant to be a curse and he turned it into a blessing. He'll do the same thing for you. All you have to do is put your mistake to work. How do I do that? You bring it to the cross. And that's where you see his finished work. You see Jesus paying for the sins of the world on the cross. There Jesus absorbed the curse for you and for me by becoming a curse. As the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus uh, took the curse. He carried the wood for you. Out of his side flowed water, the Bible tells us. And it was his atoning work on the cross that lifts the curse from off our shoulders. Now we've been liberated and set free. We've been absorbed into his family. We are his sons and daughters. Somebody say, praise the Lord. He did the work that we could never do. He went to the cross in your place for your sin. He absorbed your guilt. And now he says, I can make you a son or a daughter if you'll give your heart to me. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.